This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bunker Books podcast. This is a historic moment because this is the First podcast live from a studio since COVID hit in March 2020. And to celebrate this occasion, we've wheeled out the big guns and brought in Steve Richards, um, political commentator, performer, podcaster, and author of a fascinatingly oblique book about British history from Rab Butler to Jeremy Corbyn called The Prime Ministers We've Never Had. Steve, why did you want to write about politicians who in their own terms, in, in the terms of society, failed to get to the top. I wrote a book uh, and did a BBC series on modern prime ministers and then did some uh, a short series on prime ministers we never had. And I found people were more interested in them than the prime ministers. And I found myself more interested. The reason being that all the characters in this book were as much the backdrop of our lives than the prime ministers. And at key moments as talked about as the prime ministers. And it is, I think, a fascinating question. Why, when all of them in very different contexts were talked about as possible prime ministers, they failed. And then there is that wider question about was their career therefore a failure? or not. And this theme, it's a Shakespearean theme of soaring ambition and dashed hope, also, I think, has many lessons of leadership, political culture, media culture. Uh, so I, I, I was just absorbed by it. I liked it enormously, because it is a kind of alternative history of Britain, because although you are quite careful, you say right at the beginning, I'm not going to go into counterfactual history. Mm. I'm not going to. It's like saying, well, here's an unfinished Jane Austen novel. Someone else tries to write it. It yeah. never works. Yeah. But again and again, you are thrown up with possibilities of alternative courses Britain might have taken, which come back to the big question of the role of the individual in history. You start off with Rab Butler to listeners, sorry, uh, who aren't actually buying their Stanislavs, Rab Butler was a leading Conservative politician of the 50s and 60s, could have succeeded Churchill and didn't, could have succeeded Macmillan but didn't. And that is, I thought that was a world a Victorian politician would understand because it was where you, you had to square the big players in your party. Yeah, he's the only one who fought to be prime minister, fought in a way the wrong word with him because he was in some ways too gentle but very ambitious and one of the most formidable reforming ministers in uh, modern times, if you can call the 50s, 60s modern. And he was in a system where leaders emerged in the Tory party, the famous word. However, I think that if there had been, for Butler, a leadership contest with Tory party members, 
or with Tory MPs, he would still have lost. Because one of the lessons from this book is that those with a formidable past, and he was a great, as I say, reforming minister, often fail to seize the crown because of that past. It's contentious. You work with sometimes people outside the boundaries of your party and therefore alienate your party. And Butler was a brilliantly successful minister. But I think his ministerial career was one of the reasons why he didn't become prime minister. And that applies to quite a few, Dennis Healy's another, and, and, and others. They were too good, too impressive, and alienated their party. Well, it, it is rather a depressing conclusion from your book. I mean, you can't generalise, and you're quite careful not to generalise. You know, the reasons Jeremy Corbyn didn't become prime minister are different from the reasons Michael Hesertine didn't become Absolutely. Prime Minister, or Ed Miliband, and so on. However, a strong point seems to be, if you are what your politicians are meant to be, if you are principled, if you put what you see as a national interest first, if you take on people in your own party to do that, that could be a career-destroying mistake. Yeah. I mean, there is close to a running theme in that Europe prevented a number of very big figures from getting to the top. I think Roy Jenkins could well have become leader of the Labour Party at certain points, but he was pro-European with a passion and an unyielding conviction at a point when the bulk of the Labour Party was against Europe yeah. in the early 70s. And that was the main obstacle. It wasn't the only one, but it was the main one. That applied famously to Ken Clark, mm -hmm. who used to go around saying, my hobby is standing in Tory leadership contests <laughs> and losing them. Um, and he lost them, even though polls showed he was much the most popular candidate with the electorate in every contest he fought. And he was a candidate Tony Blair and Gordon Brown feared. And they, he, they, they, I remember seeing Tony Blair during one of these never-ending contests, and he said, oh, if they elect Ken Clark, we've got a problem. And they never did. And the reason being is that he would not in any way at all move on his passionate pro-European convictions, even though in ways that I don't think people understand, he was on economics and public service reform, absolutely close to the sort of Thatcherite I was heartbeat so, of the Tory I party. I was so glad you wrote that, you know. I was a reporter on the independence in the 80s and early 90s. And Ken Clark was incredibly right-wing. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and supported Europe for conservative reasons. Exactly right. Um, but he was, uh, he made a complete mess of health, actually. Uh, as you yeah. point out, the whole thing had to be torn up. But yeah. it's, it's the way, and it's a theme of your book, incidentally, the way image matters. Yeah. Because he was a nice guy, and he's a nice guy, smoked cigars, liked to drink, liked jazz, and was pro-European, people think of him as a kind of left-wing Tory when... He wasn't. He was a Tory Tory. Yeah, he was absolutely a Tory Tory and would have fitted the modern Thatcherite Tory party like a glove if it wasn't for Europe. But as you say, his support for Europe was a, a, a very Thatcherite support. He yeah. supported the very strict economic criteria of the Maastricht Treaty, which was broken right away. You know, you can't borrow more than about 10 Three, pence. Yes, you know. right. Yeah. Uh, he was all for that. Yeah. Image creates an impression that is often misleading. Cameron's old friend in opposition, Steve Hilton, 
Mm. The fact that he wore shorts and no socks and walked around and in a t-shirt smoking yeah. fags, people thought, oh, what a modernizer! Way to the left of anything in the Troia is way to the right of, mo- but but so as, um, uh, as has been seen since he moved to Fox News and absolutely. has spent his time yeah. drilling for Trump. Yeah, and and I've met lots of people, you know, so-called centrists who fell for the idea that Cameron and Hilton were these great centrist modernizers say, God, he's changed. No, he hasn't changed at all. He was a libertarian right wing who liked smoking and walking around in bare feet. And no doubt he's still doing that in California. So we've got Europe that does for Jenkins, Heseltine and Clark. Yeah, Heseltine, I think, you know, I, you're right. I don't do much of the what ifs, but Heseltine, I do. I noticed Because that, yes. of all the characters in the book, I'm sure that if he had won the leadership contest in 1990, by the way, it's the only one he fought for all the stuff about how ambitious Heseltine mm. was and how scheming he fought one leadership contest. Same with lots of the others, actually. If he had won in 1990, he was as passionately pro-European as Ken Clark. He could not have been expedient on the issue or bended in the way that John Major did and then Cameron. He would have taken his party on at a point where there was still space for the party to be taken on. It was not there was not a single Tory MP in 1990 who uh, wanted to leave the yeah. European Union. And all three candidates in that contest were in varying degrees pro EU. They were. Yeah. And no one said, "Oh, this is weird." So there was the space to redefine the Tory party and Heseltine would have had no choice but to do it. And I think he would have won bigger than Major in 1992 and therefore had the authority to do it. it. Is it Heseltine's support for the EU that denies him leadership? No, not him. No, uh, because Europe really wasn't a big issue in the 1990 leadership contest with with Heseltine. And this applies to others, Michael Portillo and, and, and several others. He was burdened with the perception of burning ambition and therefore wasn't trusted for a long time. And he had to wait and wait and wait to make his bid against Thatcher. And the mistrust within his party grew and grew and grew as he waited. Unfairly, in many ways. I mean, Heseltine was largely, he he privately uh, viewed Thatcher with a sort of fuming disdain, but he was broadly publicly loyal. And it was the combination of mistrust, a curious shyness, which quite a few of the prime ministers we never had, suffers the wrong word, but it was a quality of theirs. Therefore, he didn't have many friends in the Tory parliamentary party. And of course, he was famously the one who committed the act of regicide by challenging. Okay, Steve. So you've got principles your party won't accept. I think we should mention Barbara Castle, who you write very well about, now, again, to listeners who aren't actually in an old people's home, um, uh, Barbara Castle, late 1960s, comes up with a document to uh, regulate trade unions called In Place of Strife. Uh, explain what happened next. Yeah, well, she, in a way that I found quite surprising in some ways, I think was a, was a visionary, but a very practical visionary. And I explore in that chapter why she, who many thought might be the first woman prime minister, didn't get it. And Margaret Thatcher, who had only was a cabinet minister for three years as education Mm. secretary, did. I mean, Barbara Castle held many big posts. And one of the reasons, not the only one, is that she alienated her party by being way ahead of the time in terms of regulating trade unions with this paper brought out in the late 1960s called In Place of Strife. 
most of the cabinet thought it was a disaster area. Uh, Harold Wilson, who was close to Castle, Castle adored Wilson, Mm. backed her. A real sign that his power was on one level fading. That was not good enough. They had to drop it. But many people have said since if that had been implemented, the 70s would have been different. The 80s would have been different. I I mean, I really did feel reading that if Barbara Castle had won, then uh, unions had been constrained. You wouldn't have had on the same level. There still would have been. There was massive inflation, the huge industrial unrest that provoked the right wing reaction of factorism. And British history in the late 20th century would have been more like Germany, more like Absolutely. more like the rest of Europe. We Absolutely. would have had the possibility of a European social democracy. And that uh, that was the bit in the book where I, I really did feel, despite your warning, Steve, I really did <laughs> feel it's time for some what-ifs. Some what-ifs. And it is, it, she, she was a planner. She believed in planning. So when she was transport secretary, she did this great white paper, half of it never got implemented. Which, so she had f- big flaws as well which envisaged uh, she, uh, for example, in effect, the congestion charge, which London now has, and many other things. And the trade union reforms were part of a wider, sort of more planned, as you say, kind of Germanic Hmm. approach to the economy. And I kind of hadn't realised that she had a very clear, coherent, left-of-centre philosophy. And in a way, to use that ubiquitous misleading term, she was a genuine modernizer. Yeah, I, she wasn't a word in my head. Yeah. yeah, she wasn't a small L laborist like Jim Callaghan. But nor was she what Tony Blair called a third way sort of politician. Mm. It was a sort of very modern left of center vision. And it's a shame it didn't get anywhere. So we've got people out of step with their parties, the unions, yeah. most Labour parties wouldn't have Barbara Castle. The Tories, as they descend further and further into isolationism and nationalism, won't have Clark and uh, Heseltine. Yeah. And then we said earlier about you can't be too ambitious, or rather, you can't let your ambition show too much. Yeah. Transparent ambition generates two things, or maybe three, actually. A degree of, we've already talked about mistrust, but also a degree of kind of loathing. It's regarded as an unattractive political characteristic. And the more that ambition is transparent, the more those negative feelings grow. And it extends to some extent to the media. Because although the likes of Heseltine were great media performers, quite often the context in which he was introduced was, you know, if he made any speech about anything, bid for the leadership, yeah, yeah. a challenge for the leadership. And the more that goes on, the more corrosive it becomes. Portillo, I think, is a very interesting one because people now just see him as this guy who goes on train journeys and, you know, that kind of thing on the BBC. Mm. But in the mid-1990s, he generated a near hysterical worship amongst the Eurosceptic right. I remember Um, it well. Yeah, yeah. I used to go to fringe meetings where it was like going to see the Beatles in the early 60s. He'd walk in and it was largely sort of old men in the Bruges group sweating with excitement, photos of him all around. Yeah, yeah. And it was too much. Michael Gove wrote a book about him. This is someone who had only been in the cabinet for a couple of years. And then, of course, famously, when John Major did that bizarre thing of triggering a leadership contest in the Tory party while remaining as prime minister, Portillo's people got in phone banks to plan for a campaign that then never happened. And the whole thing was all too much. 
and it, the it attempt was not the tears. deeds confounded him. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah, the, is is that a kind of British attitude? Because in, in one sense, it's bizarre. You're a yeah. senior politician. Obviously, you're ambitious to be prime minister. It goes yeah. with the territory. Goes with the territory. Is, is, is this kind of uh, British style that you shouldn't be seen to be trying so hard? You shouldn't seem to be obvious. You need to look a bit attacked, ironic. Yeah, I think it is partly a sort of British sort of wariness of blatant ambition. But it's more than that. It's a weird thing that goes on. The, the media way of reporting politics is really as if we're in a presidential system. Mm. You know, so at the moment, Johnson versus Starmer, can either of them survive? Will Sunak move in? But actually, underneath it, we're in this party-based system where, rightly or wrongly, loyalty to a collective position tends to be rewarded more than individual brilliance. Yeah. Some of these prime ministers we never had would be, I've got no doubt, have been better prime ministers than some of the prime ministers we had. But they were brilliant as individuals. They would have flourished as presidential candidates. But you have got to find a way of dancing with your party or else you won't make it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is beyond the scope of your book, but the big question, I think, of British politics is how do you stop the Conservatives. It's simply yeah. the default position of the way our systems work. The Conservatives just have a bank of seats across southern, southern England. Yeah. And Labour used to beat them by having a bank of seats in Scotland and the North. Now no more. Yeah. So th- inevitably, this book is, when it talks about leaders of the opposition, one of the most striking things is <laughs> they are to tend to be Labour leaders. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think it is the overwhelming question in British politics and, and, and indeed one that is posed occasionally by conservatives who can't quite believe that they seem to win every time. Well, I mean, they, I'm not making some kind of crass, snide, Romaniacs, well, not some Romaniacs, bunker style, appealing yeah. to the bunker audience. Yeah. But particularly with Boris Johnson, I've had yeah. conservative MPs just shaking yeah, their too. heads me and too. just saying, how on earth can this guy run the country? And one of the things that's interesting, I thought uh, there are lots of good reasons to read this book and you don't have to you know, no politics back to the 60s to read it. But I mean, I thought the chapter on Neil Kinnock, who was the most inspiring orator I've Mm. ever heard in British politics, I mean, could actually change the way you think. And it's interesting, I notice, because you don't use, you don't show you're a lazy writer by just filling up the page with big quotes. You know, just say, oh, that'll get me towards my workout. But, <laughs> but, but, but you get to Kinnick and you say, oh, fuck it, this is so good. And you just quote chunks of his Well, it's, it's really interesting you mentioned that. And you're right. And it genuinely wasn't. Oh, that'll fill another 500 words. I had forgotten. I, I knew he was a brilliant orator. Indeed, when I was a student, I remember he was, a, people forget what a star he was in every sense before he became leader in 1983. He was the only figure 
from he was just shadow education secretary invited onto the then legendary Michael Parkinson chat show, for yeah. example. He was a star, and I remember seeing him at a by election as a student in 1983 before he became leader. And he was so mesmerizing that had to be it was a huge hall, but he had to there had to be an overspill in another hall. I mean, so that's what he was like. But those speeches in the 80s were a brilliant attempt to put the case for the state. Yes. One of the great divides in British politics. And that's why uh, Joe Biden famously stole one of Kinnock's speeches mm. uh, for an earlier American presidential election. Got him into a lot of trouble. And I can see why he nicked it now. He starts off as this inspiring, witty, charming politician. But the desire to seem prime ministerial slows him down. He becomes boring. He you kind of don't quite understand what he wants. Yeah, yeah. It's a tragedy, really. Uh, here was this ebullient figure with a clear idea of his politics, both internally how you manage the Labour Party, huge, huge task in itself, yeah. and in terms of a vision, and comfortable with his ebullience, which had brought him great success up until 83. And then I think from the beginning, he was doomed because the landslide majority, much bigger than Johnson's majority now, meant he was never going to win in, yeah. at the next election. But that also meant he would have to be leader of the opposition for nine years. And that's too long. So by 1992, people were fed up with him. He had been slaughtered by the papers. That slaughter persuaded him to try and change the way he looked, the way he stood, the way he behaved. I mean, obviously, the advice, be yourself, is yeah, yeah. not true advice because, <laughs> because no one no, no, no one in the top of politics or the top of anywhere is being themselves. No. Um, but... But be true to yourself is sort exactly. of more accurate. It is. And, and it Neil is. wasn't being. No. By the end, he was someone who he was not. And and it showed. And you could sort of almost see it. He read all the time, oh, Kinnock doesn't understand economics. So in all the interviews, he tried to appear like a bank manager, long answers about a minute detail of tax policy, yeah, yeah, yeah. just to try and reassure, reassure. But of course, it had the opposite effect. The, the, the other chapter I found tragic and rather odd to read was about uh, the Miliband brothers. Yeah. Because I, and I, I guess a lot of people in bourgeois centre-left life, didn't really want to get into the sibling rivalry, uh, the tragedy of it all. But I mean, I read it and I thought, good God. I mean, yeah. you're David Miliband. You know, you go to Oxford. Your little brother goes to Oxford. Yeah. You get a job working as advisor to a Labour prime minister. He gets a job working as an advisor to a Labour chancellor. You become a Labour MP in the North England. He becomes a Labour MP in the North England. You stand for Labour leader. He stands for yeah. Labour leader. And yeah. you think, at the end, you say... They destroyed each other. Yeah. And, I, I, and without, without the kind of, you do get great sibling rivals in history, without at any point Ed Miliband saying, this is why I want to do this, this is why I want to stop David, or vice versa. So there's no, as a public record, you think, how on earth does this happen? I, and I, I mean, I think the saddest element of it is that, I mean, A, I think they're both very decent people, both of them. B, by the way, I believe Ed Miliband had every right to stand in that election because when you think about it, then Labour leadership contests hardly ever happened. The last one was in 1994. 
Right. So, you know, Ed Miliband had been a cabinet minister. He did have a distinct agenda. He was to the left of David. And so I think he had every right to stand. But I think what is weird about the whole thing is that when I first knew them, in the early 1990s, they were very interesting. They were kind of more academic than mm. the sort of raw politics of Alistair Campbell trying to get stuff in the mail and the stuff. And I didn't even think, it didn't even cross my mind that they ate to be MPs, let alone leader yeah. of the Labour Party. I don't think they did. No. This is an example of two, again, to use a Shakespearean phrase, who had ambition thrust upon them. Yeah. They got into Parliament and then loads of people said, David, you know, you've got to do it, especially when Gordon Brown was prime minister. And and others who thought, well, you know, we need a break from New Labour Ed's the person yeah. told him he's got to stand. And and they then got burning ambition. And therefore, yeah, I think they did. I'm a fr- These two decent people destroyed each other because obviously Ed destroyed David. He defeated him. And David has never recovered from that. Now mm. lives in America. But David kind of destroyed Ed because Ed was so unsure about what he had done and about the need to appease David and his followers that he, like Neil Kinnock, lost all sense yeah. of a personal identity. So, OK, Steve, we're going to play a little little fork game now. Yeah. It's 2030. Right. Uh, your book has been the surprise bestseller of the 2020s. <laughs> never, never out of the top surprise? ten. Surprise? Holy, holy predictable. Holy predictable bestsellers <laughs> The Prime Ministers We Never Had, ladies and gentlemen, published by... Atlantic. Atlantic. Okay. G- get it now before... before you know, First edition is going to be very valuable. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, 2030. And your delighted publishers come to you and say, Steve, 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 we want to keep this going. We want you to update your book and put contemporary prime ministers we've never had in there. Will Keir Starmer be one of them? I genuinely don't know. All I can say is this. On the basis of the pattern so far, he faces a mountainous challenge because, Mm. as we've already discussed, there have only been two Labour leaders who've won from opposition, Wilson and Blair. So on that basis, he faces a mountainous challenge task. However, I don't think any Labour leader of the opposition has faced a government as shambolic as the current one. So I genuinely don't know how that will play out. I mean, the polls suggest at the moment that the government is still very or fairly popular. Hmm. And if that remains the case, I don't think he'll qualify for the book because I think I would argue on that basis he never had a chance okay. if he's still behind in the polls by the time of the election. Okay. But we don't know. The other one I'll just quickly mention is a possible candidate is Rishi Sunak because, as you know, at the moment, lots of people think he will be the next prime minister and fairly soon. Again, all we say on the basis of this book, it's really interesting, I think, how many chancellors who are seen as the next prime minister, don't make it. Yeah, And we've talked about Clark, uh, who was seen during the whole major era as the likely next prime minister. Healy never made it. Rab Butler never made it. Roy Jenkins, all great chancellors, popular as chancellors, never made it. So on that basis, I think it's by no means a shoo-in for Sunak. But these aren't predictions. It's just okay. on the basis of what's right. happened to the other. Let, let's, let's try and pin you down a bit. Keir Starmer calls you in for a private meeting and says, Steve, you're the great expert on this. What advice would you give me to make sure I don't make the 2030 edition of your book? What should I be doing differently? Well, that's a whole separate podcast almost, the challenge for Starmer. It seems to me, and to be honest, I don't want to sort of plug another book, but the theme of my book on prime ministers was the great winners are teachers. 
they constantly engage with the wider electorate, mm. not only about what they're about to do, but why. Mm. And you make a case about why you are putting yourself forward. So my strong advice to anyone who wants to win an election is look at the winners in that specific regard. Wilson, Blair and Thatcher are the big election winners of recent times. And they were all constantly almost relishing the why question. Mm. You know, Thatcher, it was nonsense, but, she, but it's, it was convincing oh, yeah. on monetarism. You know, my father never earned more than he spent in his shop in Grantham and the country must never earn more. Than, you know, but as a way of making monetarism accessible. It worked. It, she was a teacher. Mm. Tony Benn always used to say, a great thing about Margaret Thatcher is she was a teacher. And Harold Wilson, in his own way, in his, at his peak, was a sort of, uh, no wonder, you know, people are very worried about the same thing. Well, under Labour, the price of butter will come down. People say, oh, wow. I can see now what it's all about. And Blair constantly sort of saying, look, if you want change, I'm radical. If you want reassurance, I'm on the centre ground, the radical yeah. uh, you, you, So I think Keir Starmer needs to constantly explain not just what he wants to do, but why. And in that why question, He's you not have doing to address the, moment, the wider election. Perhaps I'm being unfair to him, but I, I don't no, really see him no. doing that. And, and he, he has, assuming this pandemic calms down in the autumn, that's the space. He has the space to do it. I remember when Blair was elected in 97, a couple of MPs went to see him, Labour MPs, about an outrageous measure he was doing to pay off Rupert Murdoch for his support. <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely outrageous <laughs> change to media law. I mean, it was yeah. disgusting. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and one of the MPs says to me, a friend who knew Blair said, what I want you to do is get a long needle, hold it in your middle finger, and throughout the interview push it, push the needle deep into your hands and focus on that pain. And he said, well, why on earth should I do that? He said, otherwise he'll convince you he's right. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I, I, oh, think, great... I think Starmer and Labour in general is not making the case. But there was a line in the chapter on Kinnock where you say, well, the reason why it's impossible, it was that he was never going to be prime minister despite people seeing it and despite him being so close in 92, was the Tory election majorities were so big. And you say at the start, his party was so divided. Now, you mentioned Sunak. Suppose Sunak calls you in and you say, well, I don't want to advise you. I, you know, I'm not a conservative. And he says, but look, Steve, this is, this is the Johnson government. We'll give you a few state contracts. There's a couple of million quid in it for you. Yeah, yeah, give I me advice. I, what, should, what should I do to not make the next edition of you? But would you say what? Stop being so nakedly ambitious? I would be very careful about how often you use the kind of dishy rishy photos, you know, of uh, oh, rishy you can see in, that in the hoodie. Yes, I, I would be very careful about how often you play that card. I would also make sure that your team, as much as possible, conveys, however much privately this is not the case, a sense that you are dancing at one with the prime minister. Disloyal chancellors or those perceived to be disloyal in the end probably won't win. There are other things, but the key thing I think for chancellors as well, frankly, and this is not wholly in his hands, is if you are forced through either ideology or circumstance to take a series of unpopular decisions that alienate parts of your own party, you won't get it. Yeah. And that's the lesson from Dennis Healy. He was a, you know, this robust, 
figure of intellectual weight in it. Oh, God, he had yeah. so many tough decisions to take in the 70s, and he was never forgiven. And he was I, never going to get it, even I, though people This is a story was. about Healy that's too good to check anyway, but you'll know it's right. There, I once heard a story that he, he's at the Ministry of Defence meeting senior civil servants, and someone uses a French term like détente. And a patronising Oxford-educated civil servant said, oh, that's French for X. And he said, who is it really? And then proceeds to conduct the rest of the meeting in In French. French. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. He spoke about four languages. I mean, the richness of his life makes me jealous, but he didn't get one of the things he would have quite liked, probably not to the degree of others, which is to become leader and prime minister. Mm. Um, And again, you know, it's, it's a reminder that we're not in a presidential system. In 1980, when he stood... Virtually the entire media thought he would get it, and quite a bit of the party. But he was in the wrong place for his party. One point that comes from your book is the endless, talking of the media, the endless articles on so-and-so is going to be the next prime minister are nearly always wrong and shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Right, finally, (laughs) speaking of the media, we are broadcasting from the Podmasters studio, which, as befits a bunch of... uh, Romaniacs is uh, deep in the heart of Islington. Uh, Could I I just make an appeal to listeners? This is a tiny studio. This is a tiny organisation. It's run by very good people who are trying to get out interesting ideas, interesting arguments, interesting writers who aren't heard as much as they could be. We do not have the kind of money of the BBC or the Murdoch Press, obviously. We don't have the Kremlin behind us to pump out fake news. We do need backing. And there is the Patreon page where if you could give us a bit of cash, that would be great. Uh, Another thing you could do if you're short is email this podcast if you liked it to three people. We're trying to raise conscious that way. If you didn't like it and you've got three people you really hate, you could email it to them. Or give us a good rating on your Android or Apple pod thing on your phone. While you search for your credit cards and phone your bank manager to arrange a new overdraft or... If you're living off the bank of mum and dad, go to your mum and dad and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to need more because I've got to give it to the bunker. Patreon page. It reminds me to thank Steve Richards. And Steve, as well as being an author and journalist, you are a kind of superstar. Well, I do a, well, not, I wish I was, but um, no, I, I do a one-man show on uh, politics, trying to sort of take people behind the scenes and dramas of Rock politics. and roll politics, It's yeah. called Rock and Roll Politics. And it's live at the Greenwich Theatre on Sunday, September the 12th, and at King's Place in North London, near the studio where we're recording, on Monday, September the 13th. And we'll go right behind the scenes and the characters and try and make sense of all the things at the start of a new political year. So hopefully well, brilliant. some of those listening might join <laughs> us. Might be able to come. Okay. Well, as a curtain raiser to your storming of the stage, we've had this <laughs> podcast. Thank you very much, Steve, for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.